Yes, Father, we treasure these moments we have here, Lord, to gather together, to glorify your name in this assembly, to lift you up, to take the opportunity to meet around the priority of our reason to gather, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, this morning, I'm reminded of the commandments that you gave your people when they were to cross the Jordan and occupy the land that you promised them. They were to attend this step of faith with a ceremony that would whitewash stones and carve permanently on them the law, your words, from start to finish, everything that you had told them, irrevocably true, inarguably sound, God, permanent, to be established among them, to guide them as a culture, to be the standard, the point of reference, to teach them and instruct them in righteousness, to lead them ultimately to their Messiah, to illustrate the reality of sin, their great need for salvation, and to look forward to the coming of the perfect Lamb of God. Father, I pray that your people, and your people represented here in this small fellowship this morning, would be like those stones with the Word of God written indelibly on the tables of their hearts that would shine and stand out and stand for the inarguable truth of your Word. Father, as we mentioned earlier in this service, there's a great famine in the land. Your glory is not exalted. Instead, man has replaced himself and other things as idols in the high places, as it were, of this nation. Lord, we say that they are nothing, and we destroy them, Lord Jesus, in the Spirit, and replace in our minds the standards of God's Word. We pray, Lord, that you would steer us, Holy Spirit, to hold our lives, our decisions accountable to the things that you say are holy, just, pure, true, of good report, things virtuous and praiseworthy. Help us, Lord, to have growing confidence to both believe and speak the things that we know from your word. Our sound will never return void and always produce fruit, even if we have to die confessing such things. We see, Lord, that in spite of the great persecution that has come upon the church from time to time, Your word has remained, and your word always will remain. And even though we might face death, and certainly all will, Lord Jesus, either by the hand of those who are against us, or just even through old age, even that enemy is defeated by the cross of Jesus Christ. And we have nothing to fear, only you, God, only you. I pray that this morning's message would reinforce our heart, Lord Jesus, and our orientation towards a confession of hope, In your word, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, Lord. I encourage you, if you have your Bible this morning, to turn with me to Psalm chapter 7. This morning we'll attempt to form the message by the heart of this psalm and by David's intent and by the emotions that moved him to the Lord, and then the resolution that he arrived at through his prayer and his song records all of this. And we'll begin by reading this psalm. The title for this message is called Finding Refuge in a Just God. Finding Refuge in a Just God. So if you'll begin with me here in Psalm chapter 7, verse 1. O Lord, my God, In you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, 
If I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns on his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. I would like to give you a possible context, some of the circumstances David might have been wrestling with, as he wrote these words. This context will be familiar. We've mentioned it several times because these opening psalms up to this point have been similar. They find David, the psalmist, in deep distress on many occasions. And as you recall, earlier in David's life, he had been anointed king but had not assumed the throne. And Saul, the king at the time, had set his face to destroy David. So Saul was pursuing David to kill him. And his army was following, and David was a lone fugitive with the few gathered about him, but outnumbered, to be sure, many, many, many times over by those who sought to track him down and destroy him. Well, I imagine it's very possible that those who wanted to curry favor with Saul might have come up with a false accusation against David. The introduction to this psalm says a shagon, a shagayon, I'm not sure that word, of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. So here it seems that there's a false accusation that this man has brought against David. Perhaps he was trying to curry favor, as I mentioned with Saul, came up with uh, something that was not true, and now David is faced not only with his adversaries trying to kill him, but also adversaries trying to kill his reputation unjustly accusing him of something. So David forced with this over his head along with everything else turns to the Lord for refuge. Where do we turn when a great injustice is felt personally? This psalm answers that question. I'd like to remind you, David on more than one occasion had the opportunity to take justice into his own hands. He had, on two occasions that I can recall, he could have killed Saul. He was there, and instead of killing him, 
He cut a piece of his robe. The next morning he held it up and, and told Saul, I had the opportunity to kill you. He yells from a safe distance. Basically, Saul says, you're a better man than I. And he retreats only to chase David down not too, not too long thereafter. Saul finally does die. And it seems that these last verses in this were, are really parallel the end that Saul reached. It says in verse 14, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and his own skull. On his own skull, his violence descends. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Well, that was true of Saul. Saul, in one of the last remaining uh, moments of his life, found himself facing sure and certain defeat. And rather than face the dishonor of capture by an invading nation, he took his own sword and falls on it, killed himself, committed suicide. David learned of this through someone who lied about it. Someone found Saul dead on the field and took some cufflinks or something to prove that it was him. And then he goes and brings David the news. But he himself lies and says that he has taken Saul's life. He's at this point expecting David to reward him for murdering Saul. David instead condemns him and says, How in the world would you think it just, I'm paraphrasing again, to kill God's anointed, your king? So even in the end, David took no pleasure in the destruction of Saul. He took his cause for justice before the correct authorities, the courthouse of God. He did not take justice into his own hands, and he did not take pleasure that someone else took justice into their hands. For David, the name of God, and following him, obedience to his word, was more important than life itself, his own peace of mind, and satisfaction of the things that troubled him most in his life. And this lesson of David is one that we could really take to heart. Aaron mentioned earlier in this service that we sang a couple of songs this morning that encourage us to be a light to the world, that encourage us as believers, Christians, carrying the truth of God forward, echoing His Word, called to be salt and light to affect this generation We have something to say. And it's not for lack of source that our influence is small and our words feeble and our confidence thin. It's for lack of understanding. And I wonder what we might have to say as Christians if we knew what the Word has to say in regard to justice. When it is right to take your cause into your own hands or not, what is justice? What is righteousness? What are the standards by which everyone must be account, which everyone will hold, be accounted for on the last day, on the judgment seat of God? And do we more often than not, because we have lost God's standards of justice and His means of acting on His truth, circumvent His process, take justice into our own hands, and thus become more concerned with our situation than His glory? I see, as I look around and listen to the newscast, a very confused society today. Very confused as to the notion of justice. 
But justice is an extremely important word. And the terms must be qualified and the definition must be held true to the word. You can't just arbitrarily say this is just or that is just. Because whatever standard you use, whatever standard you use to say something is just or unjust, that is your God. Whatever measure you define righteousness by, that is your God. Think about some of the things you may have heard lately in the news. The rich must pay their fair share, we hear. Well, it sounds like a populist rhetorical you know, comment. Maybe we dismiss it as political speech. Maybe we think, yeah, that's, that's right. Everybody needs to pony up, pay their fair share. But it, let's analyze that phrase just a little deeper. There's an assumption of justice, of truth in that phrase. It's an imposition that whoever's saying it is making, they are saying that it is unjust or unfair for X person to have so much money and not be paying an X amount to a certain cause and Y person to have lesser money and so on. So even in a phrase like that, that we might dismiss very easily as we hear this election cycle ramping up and politicians making their speeches, let it be known that whatever claims to justice are made, Behind those, there's a standard. And whatever that standard is, that is your God. And more often than not, the God of this world and the God of this age and the God of this culture is humanism. It's ourselves. It's an arbitrary shifting measure. One that makes us feel good. One that allows us to take justice into our own hands. One that totally bypasses God, His decrees, His ordination, and His definition of what justice is. Let's see if we can learn from Psalm chapter 7, a grid that David uses to judge when to act, how to act, what is righteous, and what is wicked. I'd like to introduce the remainder of this message with a question. The last verse of this, which I'll give you in a moment, the last verse of this psalm is a worshipful one. It says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to His righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Is it surprising to you that a verse like that, which sounds like one of the songs we sung this morning, follows a verse that maybe didn't sound like any of the songs we sang today, or follows verses that don't sound like a common worship song you might hear on the radio? If man does not repent, David also says in verse 12, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons making his arrows fiery darts. Goes on to talk about the trap that the wicked man digs for himself. God is eager to kill those who justly deserve his wrath, David says. God is anxious, ready, sharpening his sword, bending his bow, setting his arrows on fire to rightly dispense by his own hand the recompense due the wicked. Then he says, following this revelation, I will give thanks to the Lord. The thanks due to His righteousness, I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Which brings to mind this question, what condition of the soul is demonstrated in Psalm 7 that deems enduring great personal injustice, because David is enduring a great injustice, you can see it here, 
He's not taking it into his own hands. Even as we know, as the word records, he had the opportunity. He's not even celebrating it when someone else says that he has done him a favor. David is enduring great personal injustice. He's beholding the certainty of immutable, righteous demands of our sovereign God. There's a submission to the Lord's omniscient supervision that is on display here, and he's affirming the eternally decisive wrath of God. So my question is this, what condition of the soul is demonstrated in this psalm that deems all of these an occasion for worship? What was it about David's spiritual understanding that inspired him to worship at the reality that God would kill those who did not repent, that God would justly deal with the wicked? What was it about David's state of mind that saw that as inspiration for a worship song? I'll hopefully close with an answer to that question and leave you hanging as we explore and try to unpack a little bit deeper what's hidden in this psalm. As we explore the imagery and themes of Psalm chapter 7, I imagine David as a court reporter, like he's typing there, recording his case in the first person. There's a lot of imagery in this psalm that brings to mind legal associations. There's references to court. There's references to God uh, as judge and justice and an assembly and God judging the peoples, etc. As we move through the points of this message, I've labeled them accordingly. In point number one, the legal association as a division in Psalm chapter 7 is, I just put the courthouse. David has a problem, an issue. He's bringing charges, so he goes to a courthouse. In verse 1, he says, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. There's a great anxiety. There's an urgency for his appeal. He feels threatened. His life itself torn apart. David was not just a king, before that he was a shepherd. He knew the great destruction that a predator like a lion would do to a helpless lamb. He'd likely seen it before he'd fought them off with his own hand, knowing the damage that they would do. A helpless lamb would be torn apart in moments by a lion who would feast on it. This is the imagery he chose to use to describe the urgency of the injustice that was levied against him. But where did he go to bring his appeal What was his courthouse? What represented that place of refuge? I know if I go to this place, I know if I take these steps, I will be able to pursue justice. I will be on the right path to have something done about my situation. Where was that security founded for David? Where was his hope for justice lying? Well, it's in the very first words of this first verse. O Lord, my God, in you Do I take refuge? So the courthouse for David, the standard for righteousness, the place that he found as a refuge for his troubled heart was God himself. Later in verse 10, he refers to God as his shield. God not just as a refuge, but also as a protection, a defense. He says in verse 10, My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. The urgency of his situation has moved him to seek refuge much like those under the Mosaic law who could seek in the house of God a refuge when falsely accused of murder. This was called sanctuary, and there were sanctuary cities. 
for similar reasons. In the Old Covenant, in the order, the Hebraic Republic that God had designed for His people, if you were in severely oppressed by an unjust sentence hanging over your head and you were falsely accused of murder, you could go and seek sanctuary in the house of the Lord and therefore turn yourself over to the judge, the ultimate judge, God as it were, to plead your case. This is kind of the imagery that's probably influencing David as he pens this song. He will find refuge in the most secure place he knows, justice to reside in the very person of his God. And the very core and nature of who God is. It leads me to want to do a little further study. What aspects of God's character does David consider a peaceful haven for his soul? So if he says, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Does he expound on that? God's character is manifest in numerous and glorious ways. It's clear in this psalm that there are different aspects that David highlights things that he knows God is that gives him hope that he will be dealt with justly. Just a few to list for further study, if you're so inclined, several that I highlighted, and you may find more in verse 1, he sees God's delivering power as his hope for justice. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. His delivering power also in verse 6, God's righteous anger, the aspect of God's character. David relies on God's anger, which he knows he retains for wickedness to be something that is a refuge that he can rely on to know that he will be dealt with justly because in contrast to the wicked, he has integrity of heart. Also God's predestination in the same verse. Arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me for you have appointed a judgment. I see in that verse that David is taking great refuge, that God has a plan and an appointed time. He has predestined the time and the terms by which his adversaries would be judged. It was not for David to take that into his own hands. We think again of the instance of Saul falling on his own sword. David knew that that time was appointed where the wicked would be judged, and he was going to trust God's appointed time. Trust God's predestination. Trust His overarching superintendence. In verse 7, David trusts His sovereign lordship. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. And though men assemble, and sometimes they gain confidence by what they can agree to together, David sees God as transcending the assembly of man. He sees Him as higher and more sovereign than the majority. Verses 8 and 9, discernment of the heart and intentions of man. God's ability to see through right to the core of the intent of man. David places great faith in this. Also salvation of the righteous in verse 10. His judgments, God's judgments in verse 11. And verses 12 and 13 expound on God's wrath. And finally in verse 17, His glory as expressed in His lauding of God's name, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name where I'm using glory of the Lord, the most high. So these were the aspects of God's character that David meditated on to give him peace of mind that he would be justly dealt with. This is the first court of appeal for the believer who feels oppressed to go in prayer and confess that God alone is your refuge. 
Underneath that, God has agencies that he will use. But those agencies are illegitimate to the degree that they do not honor God as the author, the perfecter of our faith and the author of justice. He is the one, the standard by which we measure the legitimacy of our rule of law, of our justice system. How do we know when the magistrates are corrupt? We know it from the standards of our holy God. So David wasn't going to run to the highest Supreme Court of man he could find first. He was going to run to the Supreme Court of a holy God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and has a perfect appointed time for justice at every turn and in every situation and circumstance, no matter how frightening yours might appear to you, even if you feel like a helpless lamb staring a hungry lion in the face. In this day and age, because the presence of humanism is so pervasive and apparent around us, it seems to me that we aren't very often likely to think of a higher standard of justice than the Supreme Court of our land. I wonder how often man fails to run to God first as the arbiter of truth and a safe haven for his own plight. I wonder how often, instead of doing that, he wrestles, we wrestle from the hands or attempt to of a sovereign God justice and take it into our own hands instead of resting in his appointed time we won't rest until we have seen justice happen i can think of one example at least i several years ago i don't expect to soon forget the tone of voice that this interview was given in i think it was a year or a year and a half ago i was listening to the radio and heard an interview of a mother who had lost a son to abduction 20 years previously she had spent the last, the 20 years that changed her life entirely. As you imagine it might would, but it was interesting how it changed her life. When her son was abducted, she took it upon herself to make it her personal goal to see that justice was brought about in the case. And this is one that, in the case of, of this horrible crime that was committed against her son, And this is one where I hate to call the kettle black. I have not been in that position. And I can only imagine the pain and the just uncertainty and the great anxiety and the lack of closure and those sleepless nights that you must endure if a loved one so close to you was taken so unjustly. I cannot imagine that sort of pain, but perhaps David could. And I know certainly God does. I listened to this woman tell her story and I could not escape the tone of emotional weariness in her voice. She had run for political office. She had started campaigns. She had raised money. She had brought awareness to the situation. She by this time had become a national figure. And I couldn't help but think, I wonder if that outstanding rest and peace that this woman is missing would never be found even if the perpetrator were brought to justice. I wonder if what she's missing is placing the appropriate time in the hands of God and finding a refuge in His sovereign character for the great plight of her soul, which admittedly is too much for a mere human to bear. This is just one example, and a sad one at that, of the fallout, the emotional pain that we might incur that could permanently scar our soul if we do not take to heart the example of David and go first to our Lord to find refuge in injustice.
The courthouse is God. Number two, case filing. David makes an oath in verses 3 through 5. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory to the dust. David is making an oath here, so confident of his position that he's willing to say, search me, know me, see if there be any wicked way in me. Let myself be on the judge's stand as the witness stand as well before the judge of this entire universe. This is a step that we often miss when we're filing our own case with God. It's the first step that we always should take, which is an introspective, repentant, soul-searching, entreating God that in this case, don't let me act too soon without searching my own heart to see if the circumstance I face isn't a direct result of my own sin. As David files his case and brings charges against those who are unjustly accusing him of things, he does so penitently. He does so bearing his own soul. He does so not presumptuously, but making sure that his own heart is in place and in check. Not selfishly for his own self pursuing justice, but instead aligning himself with the priorities of God for your sake. Hear my plea, hear my cry, not for my own. When we file our case, it seems that this is a clear example of one of the first stages that we should that we should be obedient to when we bring our request before the Lord, to be diligent to search our own heart and to make sure we're not selfishly missing something that God might want to illuminate of our own soul. I read some of the writings of the Puritans and some of the sermons of the past, and there were many times when it seemed like God's people or the nation at that time smaller in number and more centralized around the authority of God and His Word. seems like many times that they faced trials and circumstances that were absolutely threatening like a lion to sheep. And it seems as I read in these messages that men of God gave at that time when the pilgrims were coming over from England, for instance, and settling one of the first settlements in Plymouth, when the Puritans settled in Salem, just 10 years or so later, that they made a diligent effort in the order of their services to make sure to repent first before they sought justice, before they stepped forward, before they did anything to lay their soul bare and see if there was sin in the camp that prevented God's people from being triumphant or enduring in this particular situation. Reminded of the sin of Achan, how sin harbored in one man's soul prevented God's people from conquering an entire city. Let's take that lesson to heart and follow David's example to make sure we search our own soul so we don't selfishly pursue justice at the expense of God revealing something that may be the direct result of our own shortcomings, of our own failings. So we have courthouse, David files his case, and he does so fearfully, penitently. And then number three, order in the court, verses six through eight. 
This illustrates David's high and rightful view of the judicial authority of God. We've commented some on this, but we can see it in greater detail in these three verses. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered around you. The Lord judges the peoples. He goes on to say, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is within me. Earthly rulers are under God's law. Samuel Rutherford wrote a book that was one of the founding documents that inspired the documents that founded this nation. It was called Lex Rex, two Latin words, law and king. The order of those words is the point of the book. The law is over the earthly king. David has a high view and a rightful view of the judicial authority of God. He sees law as emanating from who God is. He sees God as the highest authority, defining righteousness, and therefore the highest court of appeal. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Earthly rulers are under the law. Law in relationship to God is an extension. It's an application of His very nature. And David is making making an appeal to this. O Lord, glorify Yourself. Make Your righteousness and Your standards known in judging this circumstance rightly. This is part of his prayer and part of his appeal. Make the wicked account to Your holiness. Call the assembly together and let many people see the standards of perfection that is your character when you rightly judge in this situation. Verse 7, Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. And when the gavel of that heavenly court comes down, and when it's obvious who has the last judgmental word, and when the last sin is accounted for at the judgment seat of Christ, let it ring in everyone's ear that God is God and there is no other. And by Him, every other law is measured. And by Him, every other decision and appeal is correctly, accurately, and perfectly justified or rejected according to Him, God, the law, the creator of this universe, and the hand that holds its very essence together. The assembly here is not God. And this is one lie that we're faced with in our culture. Just because you can assemble some people together, it does not constitute truth. Just because you can take a poll and find there's a number of people that agree with your position, that does not make you or your position, your ideology, or your campaign or your platform the standard of justice. The assembly is not God. God is over it. He returns over it on high. The assembly of peoples is there to behold His glory and to reinforce by their confession and affirmation that the Lord, He is God and there is no other. And anything short of that is a babble that must be destroyed. When an assembly begins to pretend they can do what God alone can do, like like ensure security and define justice, they will be torn down. They will be proved a folly and foolish in their endeavors. And God will be found on that high place eventually, as every crumbling vestige to man's self-defined morality becomes so many relics in the expense and trash can of history. 
The assembly is not God. His authority transcends the assembly of man. Assemble to glorify Him, not assemble to ascertain some human power or to exert some human authority. Human authority must be judged against the standard which is God. God is not limited to physical evidence to determine intent. As we go on to read, David trusts God's perfect discernment of the heart. Right inside, God is able to look and see with his omniscient eye why man does what he does. Verse 8, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, that you may establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. You who test the minds and hearts. We see here a picture of God that David put his refuge in, who sees directly to the intent of the crime, sees directly to the core of the being, of their being. Now with the courts of man, we're forced to come to some sort of judgment and conclusion based on the best probable judgment call, the physical evidence that's offered to us. God is not limited to this physical evidence. He alone knows, discerns right to the heart of man. The best way for us to follow in that and to learn from that is to be steeped with the Word of God. Because with the Word of God in hand, it is a two-edged sword that reaches in, discerns, and divides between that which is wicked and that which is righteous. What are we saying here? What is the order in the court of God? How can we learn justice according to His terms by studying Psalm chapter 7? Well, one conclusion we can certainly come to is an earthly judge or a magistrate, a court system, judicial system, or what have you. Any of those things, an earthly judge who would never search the Scriptures or seek the face of God before he makes a decision or a judgment call presumes himself to be God. An earthly judge who would never search the Scriptures, never seek fearfully the face of God, never value His standards of truth, never study the case law of the Old Testament, hundreds of pages of law and case law meant to give us the standards by which to rightly judge righteousness, a man who would ignore all that and just go with his own gut feeling or his own experience presumes himself to be God. He is at that point an idol. This is one point. One point in the rule of law where we have fallen immeasurably short of the standards of righteousness the Word of God declares justice to be. We must call for repentance in this land. We must pray for judges, magistrates, and people who affirm a law and a rule of law that was affirmed in the heart of David when he wrote this song. Our God, as a standard of justice, is the ultimate last word as to truth. We live in a day where the last word of truth is what the highest court decides it is. Well, what happens if they codify something sinful? What happens if they say murder is okay? Who will hold our leaders accountable? God will. Pray that repentance comes before the sure sword of judgment. Because if it does not come, if our legal system remains unilateral and exercising some kind of total arrogance that they alone through their process can define and determine righteousness, what will be their end? What will remain in order that a just God is vindicated in His holiness? Well, we have the answer in this passage as well in verse 12. If man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows 
fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil, and we do this anytime we deny God as the final and ultimate authority in, in everything. He is pregnant with mischief, and he gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out. He falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Guilt and sentencing are described also in this passage. There's also a brief point that I wanted to mention. I had labeled these again courthouse and then case filing, and we just discussed the order in the court. There's also this term in a court where we refer to the judge as your honor. And it's this idea that you ought to show respect for the position of the judge or that person in authority if you expect him to be attentive to your case. Well, in God's court, it goes a step further. In God's court of appeal, the legitimacy of your case has everything to do with the honor of the judge. In other words, he is judging by himself the highest standard of righteousness. And this is why David is moved to say in verse 17, I will give to the Lord thanks due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. If my case is vindicated, it will serve to honor you because punishing this offense brings glory to your righteousness and vindicating me shows that one who places faith in you is attended with blessing. And then the final point, guilt and sentencing. We see the hand of God celebrated, worshipped, glorified in this psalm, the hand of God in recompense. I shared with you earlier the example of Paul falling on his own sword. That was a dramatic example of one digging a pit and then himself falling in. I was reading a commentary on this passage, and there was a certain Earl of Wartenberg post-Reformation who was fighting against Lutherans, Protestantism, serving Charles V. He was the Holy Roman Emperor, I assume, at that time. This man, the political, the geopolitical circumstances were interesting, but principally the same in this era. Basically, the enemy of our souls was using the agencies of man to make war on God's people and therefore try to stamp out the testimony of the believers at that time. The believers at that time were Lutherans in Germany. They had been freshly inspired by the Reformation, but they represented a threat to the establishment. They represented a threat to the humanistic, authoritative, unilateral powers that, that were at that time and specifically as represented by what the Holy Roman Emperor wanted to accomplish. Well, he had his men that were on his side, and one of them was this Earl of Wartenberg, and he boasted one night, as history records over dinner, that he would not rest until he would soon ride spur deep in the blood of the Lutherans in Germany. That very night, his lungs, something happened, and he coughed and choked, And they found him the next morning strangled and his throat was full of his own blood. This is another dramatic example of how a man digs a pit, brags that he will do whatever he wills without ever fearing God and himself falls in. Those are two dramatic examples. But it occurs to me that those dramatic examples, at least on this side, from our perception, maybe are more the exception than the rule. But is it universally true that any man who denies God is digging himself a pit which he himself will fall in? 
And the answer is yes. The pit ultimately is death. If you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to be working towards an answer to the question that we open with. But I'd like to read to you one verse here, and then we'll read the surrounding verses in a moment. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. It's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You remember in David's psalm as he says, Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. The pit that man digs for himself is death itself. Every man who denies God and lives as if there is no accounting, every man who goes on about his own business and cares nothing of God's truth and His word, does not seek Him, does not honor Him, does not worship Him, does not fear Him. Everything he does, everything he pursues, is like a honing stone sharpening, polishing the blade on his own guillotine that will one day fall, and there will be no escape. Every man who goes about his business unjustly, without a second thought of what God requires, everyone who simply ignores, despises, or thinks nothing of what God has done and goes and pursues his own ends, it's like window dressing for his own coffin. It's like working as hard as you can to rub teak oil in to the instrument of your own death. Everything you do outside of honoring God is futile and only stores up for you, as Romans declares, wrath in the day of wrath until you come to grips before you die with the righteousness of God, what He requires, and how your sin can be atoned for before you have to atone for it yourself in hell upon death. As we read the surrounding verses of Hebrews chapter 9, it provides for us an answer to this question. What condition of the soul is demonstrated in David that would see enduring great personal injustice, beholding the certainty of immutable righteousness of God, submitting to His omniscient supervision, and affirming the eternally decisive wrath of God to see all of these as an occasion for worship? We find the answer as we read verse 24, Hebrews 9, For Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to have suffered, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Resolution for justice and hope for mercy for the condemned sinner is found only, only through faith in the propitiary death and the judgment seat of Christ. The answer to why the wrath of God and His mercy both are an occasion for worship for us as saints as we know the glory of God is vindicated in justice. 
levying the punishment that is due sin, either on the shoulders of his son or in hell itself. And we know that we can be justly saved when Jesus Christ is the propitiatory or wrath-absorbing sacrifice for the arrows, the fiery arrows, the wet sword, the wet sword, and all of those instruments of death and judgment that God has prepared and that we deserved. The only way of escape is through the only way, truth and life, Jesus Christ. This is a message for a world confused as to justice. There's only one man in whom forgiveness and justice can both be satisfied, in whom mercy and truth can endure and remain and be new every morning for the believer and whose throne is founded upon justice. And that is in the one man, Jesus Christ. And the unique event that all of history to the redeemed believer celebrates and proclaims the plight of our souls, which hinged on his atoning work at the cross. The cross justifies God in looking over the sins of one like David because they would be absorbed on the shoulders of his son. And the cross justifies David and justifies you and me because we place our faith that the wrath that we deserved and will certainly be levied at the appointed time at death for everyone who acts as though God does not exist. It is our way of escape. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that you would help us find a refuge in our just God, that we would realize with an increase, Lord Jesus, of understanding and weight what came together at the atoning work of Jesus Christ. As these thoughts rush into our mind, and even as we are on the brink of this Christmas season, we can see that when you intervened into this realm to be born of human flesh, to come and to take on the mantle of our sin, and to be beaten, bruised, crucified for the wrath and the judgment that we justly deserved. Suddenly Christmas is more than just a fairy tale, a nice story, a reason to be nostalgic. It's now a reason to worship with fear and with faith and with joy and and to find sanctuary and refuge in that hope and truth. Lord, I pray that we would echo in our life and in where we make our stand and where we make our proclamation and where our security lies, the heart of your servant David, who saw the highest court of appeal as his God and the only way to know that the end of his plight, of his problem, would certainly be taken care of according to your perfect knowledge and in your perfect time. Oh God, I pray if there's anyone here who has not realized the sacrifice that was paid for their own sin, Lord Jesus. In the death of our Lord, I pray that they would come to the cross, repenting and searching their own heart as David demonstrates and see that their only hope is to cast their sin upon your shoulders and trust that it is paid for in your blood. In your name we pray, dear Jesus. Amen.